I want you to think about the word trust. Trust. I want you to think about the people that you trust or maybe the person that you trust the most or if there is a person that you can say unequivocally with no caveats, you trust them. Trust, kids, is something that's really precious to have and really easy to lose. And maybe your parents, if you're, if you're a small child, maybe your parents have told you that you have to regain their trust if you've broken their trust by lying to them or doing something that uh, they had told you not to do. A betrayed trust is really one of the hardest things to heal from. In fact, the deeper the wound from the trust betrayed, the less likely it is that we'll be able to experience on this side of eternity full healing. Many of us have scars from broken trust. Some of our parents have proved untrustworthy. Some of our siblings, maybe we ourselves have done some things to break other people's trust. Maybe your church has hurt you. Maybe like me, you've been in a lot of churches in your lifetime. Maybe you've been members of a member of multiple churches up to this point. Maybe it's hard for you to join a church because they're all the same. They're just all hypocrites. Say one thing, do another thing. Church hurt is really hard. Really hard to heal from. It's just a natural defense mechanism to not be sure if we can trust somebody after somebody else or maybe that person has broken our trust. So who do you trust? I mean, implicitly, you have no defense mechanisms up against them. Your life, your heart is wide open to them. And the more you trust them, the more trustworthy they prove to be. I believe trust is the underlying principle beneath today's passage. I'm going to tell you straight up, yes, it's weird for me to preach on it. No, I would not have picked it. I'm so thankful God wrote it. It's something he wants us to think about. Today's passage is about paying your pastors. It's also about you protecting them from false accusation. Do you trust the rumor mill more than you trust a faithful pastor? So-and-so said that such-and-such -such did. Did you hear about Timothy? Did you hear what Timothy did? Who do you trust? So it's about paying your pastor. It's about protecting your pastor from ungodly people. But it's also about protecting the church from ungodly pastors. Pay them. Protect them. And be protected from the bad ones. That's what today's passage is about. See, the text deals with the way God commands churches to relate to faithful elders, faithful pastors. It's the same office. We're continuing our series. If you're new and visiting with us, right through the book of 1 Timothy. And in chapter 5, God put a passage in there 
to say, in other words, he loves you. Last week we saw that he sees the grief and pain of women whose spouses have died, their widows. He loves them. And the way he loves them is he gives them to a church where he takes care of them through us. Today, he loves pastors. That's God's good idea. Parentheses. I wouldn't have done it this way. Isn't this strange? You come to a building on Sunday afternoon somewhere in the east corridor of Memphis and you listen to a guy talk for a little while. I wouldn't have done it like this. But God loves pastors and He's got a good plan. And this is, as we've said at Grace Church many times before, this is actually a parable of the Gospel. You sit there and do nothing and you just receive from God. That's a portrait of salvation. That's part of the reason, not all the reason, that we get together weekly. Just to be reminded that we're loved by God by no doing of our own. And it's God's good idea. He loves pastors. He also wants you to protect them. That's the church's job, not the pastor's job. And we don't need to live with a victim mentality and everybody's out to get me, but if you haven't noticed, not everybody loves pastors. And some people say some really bad things about pastors. They actually lie. They say that they did things that they didn't do. Or they intended to do a thing that they never even thought about. And the good pastors need to be protected by the church. That's God's assignment. But he also loves the whole church, and he wants churches to be protected from bad pastors. I would actually like to see a lot of pastors not be pastors anymore, because the guy that the church pays to be their pastor is actually not one. So God loves the church. He loves widows. He loves pastors. He wants churches to take care of them. And he also wants churches to be protected from the bad ones. He loves us. He wants to take care of us. Well, if that doesn't get your attention, I can't do any better. So let's just turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I'll read down through verse 20. Try to pay careful attention to every little phrase. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. This is God's Word. Let's pray again as we ask for His help to understand and apply it. Father, we want to thank You for Your wise design in creating the local church. We thank You for Her biblical order and structure. We can see in all the churches of the New Testament each of them had several pastors. And we ask that you would cause the pastors of this church to be trustworthy. We ask that the members of this church will be bent toward generosity in supporting their pastors. 
And we ask for the pastors and the church to be faithful to each other. The church in supporting them and holding them accountable. The pastors in serving them faithfully with preaching and teaching that honors you. We ask that our under-shepherds at this church would be clear reflections of the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of this body, this church. And we thank you especially that Acts 20 says it so plainly, he shed his blood for the church. He purchased her. You care very deeply about her knowing that you love her, and you care very deeply about her being well cared for on this side of eternity. Care for us, Lord, right now. The hurting people who've been hurt by churches, those whose trust has been broken by bad pastors. Minister to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So being a pastor is more than being a preacher. Preaching and teaching the Word of God is one of the things that pastors are called by God to do. Now that's the most shaping, the most significant thing that happens in any church. So as goes the pulpit, so goes the congregation. John MacArthur said, hard sermons, soft people. Soft sermons, hard people. I don't think we need to berate anybody. But as goes the pulpit, so goes the church. The diet you put into your physical body shapes your tomorrows, and the diet you put into the spiritual body of the church shapes her tomorrows. No one should pastor if they will not say what God has said. Nobody should pastor. They also should not pastor if they're not trustworthy. So if a congregation, I'm going to use you and me, if the congregation is suspicious of the pastor's character, they will not favorably listen to what he has to say. It doesn't matter how many pages of notes he has or how good they are. It doesn't matter if they're faithful to the text and really eloquent explanations of the Bible. The people won't listen if they don't trust the person. It doesn't matter how accurate or good his preaching or teaching might be. On the other hand, if a pastor is known to love the people well, and to be a man who meets the biblical qualifications for a pastor, which are two chapters earlier, then a Christian congregation will appreciate him. And I underline Christian. There's a lot of faithful pastors who are not appreciated by churches. And it has nothing to do with their lack of faithfulness. Ichabod has been written by God over the church. The glory has departed. And they just chew pastors up and spit them out. And I've got some friends who've been chewed and spit. But even if a man is really unskilled in speech, like Moses, he stutters. But he says true things about God and he lives in accord with that truth. Christian churches will really appreciate him. They'll thank God for him. 
It goes back to the age-old principle of trust, right? The principle applies to every human relationship. So if you're a little kid, this applies to your parents and from them to you. It applies in marriage, it applies in employment, it applies in every relationship you have, and here's the principle. If there's high trust, you can say the wrong thing and be taken the right way. If there's low trust, you can say the right thing and be taken the wrong way. How is our relationship? What's going on in your heart right now? What do you think about me? Boy, if I wanted to get real self-conscious and psychoanalytical, I could get all up in my head right now trying to worry about what you think about me. I'm gonna say two things about that. I really, really care. I do, and I don't mean it in the negative sense. I actually want you to like me. And on the other hand, I could care less. I don't care. My affirmation ultimately doesn't rise one iota or fall any lower based on what you think about me. And so if I need you to affirm me so that I feel better about myself, here I go psychoanalyzing, I actually can't serve you. I can't love you. And parents, you can't love your kids if you worship them or want them to worship you. If you need them to give you something, you cannot love them. You can't use people and love them at the same time. On the other hand, though I do want you to like me, I said, what if you don't? Ultimately, what does that do to me? Well, it may make my life a little sadder. It actually would. But in the grand scheme, we can have a relationship where one's affirmation of the other is not the basis of why we like and trust each other. Churches don't need robots preaching to them. I'm not so sure that you couldn't say to a gadget right now, preach a sermon better than the one I'm currently listening to, and it could probably do it. But you don't need a robot preaching to you, though they can probably communicate things rightly. What we need is gifted, called, qualified men who are trustworthy. And if a pastor or elder is faithful, and this is why I never would have picked this passage, because yes, it does feel weird, but if a pastor or elder is faithful and you don't esteem him highly, things will not go well with you and God. Our responsibility, I'm putting myself actually in your shoes. I'm trying to talk to you as one of the flock, not only as one of the pastors. I also have pastors. There are five other pastors in addition to me. I'm just like you in that sense. What is our responsibility to our pastors as a church? I'm so glad you asked. That is the theme of today's passage. There are two parts to it, verse 17 and 18, verse 19 and 20. Remuneration and rebuke. Paying our pastors and protecting the flock. That's the two parts of the passage. First, remuneration. That means salary, money. Paying our under-shepherds. This passage shows us, as I mentioned earlier, that God loves us. 
And I get that because there's a whole section before it about widows and how we should take care of them. There's a section here about pastors and how we should take care of them. There's a section about how God wants to take care of the whole church and keep them from having bad pastors. So he loves us. He wants to take care of us. So the first part of remuneration, paying our pastors, I have four questions. What, 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 where? What does rule well mean? What does double honor mean? What type of effort should a pastor put forth? And how is he to be esteemed by the church? And then finally, where does Paul find support for such instruction? First, rule well. Do you see it in verse 17? Your translation may put it a little differently, but the New American Standard says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. What does rule well mean? Like last week, Paul had two categories for widows, and he also had two age groups for widows. He had true widows and unworthy widows. He had young widows and old widows. So two types and two age categories, because he wanted the church to know that God wanted them to take care of what is referred to as three times, widows indeed, the true widows. Church, you take care of them, that's God's good plan. Similarly, there are two categories of pastors in today's passage. One is explicit and one is implicit. There are those who rule well, and by inference, there are those who do not. So before we get into the matter of what it means to rule well, let's also not miss the forest for the trees. Paul clearly has in mind not one man, but a cluster of men. The word elders is plural. And... While these were under shepherds of the same congregation, some of them apparently had different areas of focus because he says, especially the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching. So there's more than one. So there's a plurality of male, biblically qualified pastors at the church in Ephesus. Timothy didn't preach every Sunday. There were other pastors. He didn't do all the counseling and shepherding. There were other pastors. He didn't teach every class and do all the discipling and do all the evangelism conversations and blah, 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 blah. There's a plurality of pastors. But lest we make too strong a distinction between them, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching, two chapters earlier, Paul said they all have to do that. Not necessarily preach like this, but 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, all the elders have to be able to teach. That does not mean they have to teach a Grace Kids class or a Rooted class. They don't have to teach Grow. They don't have to preach in the pulpit. What it does mean is when they open this book and somebody else is a Christian sitting across from them, Christ is in them, Christ is in him, and Christ is in here. When he talks about this book, do they tend to grow? Does he do God's people good with the Bible? Able to teach. So, some especially work hard at preaching and teaching. All elders are required to be able to do that. So whether it's in the pulpit or the counseling room, interpersonal discipleship or a classroom, all elders are to be distinguished by doing God's people good with the nutrient of his word. Okay, so there's a plural, one of, plural of them, and that's what they do. So what does this rule well? Some Christian traditions have taken this to mean there's two types of elders. Some who do the administration, business, ruling, and some who do the teaching, preaching. 
And so some whole tribes of Christendom have ruling elders and teaching elders in the same church. Some do this, some do that. I don't think that's what it means. Martin Vincent said the comparison is with those elders who do not exhibit equal capacity or efficiency in ruling. The passage lends, quote, no support to the reformed theory of two classes of elders, ruling elders and teaching elders. The special honor, here's your word for the day, emolument, emolument. I don't know how to pronounce that. Emolument. It means salary. It's assigned to those, quote, who are who combine the qualifications of both. So one more quick word about pastors in the New Testament. Not only did every church have more than one of them, that is true, some of them earn their livelihood from the ministry of the gospel, work as a pastor, and some of them earn their livelihood outside the church. I could take you down a list that shows you that, and if you have questions about it, I'm happy to talk to you. They had what we would call staff pastors and lay pastors. Some brothers who got their livelihood from some vocation outside the church and some who earned their livelihood through the generosity of the church. So that's rule well. There's plural of them and they're all serving together the ministry of God's word. Some of them especially work hard at preaching and teaching. Those are verse 17 worthy of double honor. That's my second question. What does double honor mean? Double honor. A pastor's preaching and teaching ministry alone is not enough for him to be considered worthy of double honor. The verse actually says it. I mean, anybody can teach. Any of you right now, extemporaneously, even if you're shy and introverted, it's possible that you could just walk out of your chair right now, come stand up here, young, old, man, woman, and say stuff. Preaching and teaching is not the requirement. It's in the verse, those who work hard at it. Like that's their job. That's what they work on. Like while some of the godly brothers in this church, who I have no hesitation to say, and I'm not flattering them, more godly than me, know the Bible better than me, and I'm not speaking in flattery. It's true. Some of those guys clock in eight to five somewhere else in the city, and they do that work. But these people are to work, work hard at preaching and teaching. They're to arduously, prayerfully study the Bible to try to explain it to people because that's the nutrients that our souls must have. And James says not many people should do that. Not many, quote, should become teachers because they will incur a stricter judgment. So Paul's saying, if you preach and teach, okay, do you work hard at it? If so, you're worthy of double honor. If we want to look around at double honor being applied all over church history in our contemporary setting, even right here in our city, pull churches, find out whether they pay their pastors, double honor has something to do with that. Remuneration, salary, money. We could ask a lot of good questions and probably get a lot of good feedback. What is our sense of responsibility to our pastors to take care of them? Does that mean that we just kind of take the aggregate, the average of what other churches do, and that's just kind of what we do? Do we look at life circumstance and age and family and present needs? How do we do this? Double honor could mean, one commentary said, 
they deserve twice as much pay as everybody else in the church. That poses some difficulties. I'm still reading the quote. It could mean double what he got last year. It could mean double, uh, double someone else, double someone else who did not do as well. It could mean double from the church down the road. It could mean double what he expected. And then the commentary goes on to say, Paul probably intended that the pastor receive honor in a double form, not a double amount. One is honor and one is honorarium. Trust and pay. So before I move on, I want you to think about your family budget. How much of it are you investing in kingdom purposes? Kingdom of God, you've allocated this to that. Richard Wormbrand was in a jail cell and his entire annual salary was one little bowl of watered down soup every day while he was in prison. And so he would, skip, he would dip his hand into the bowl of soup and reach through the jail cell to his neighbor on the other side of the wall and let his neighbor drink one handful of his three times daily portion of soup because it was his way to tithe to God. I think Richard Warmbrand would say, you have more than you think you have. I'm asking again, how much of your resources are allocated to kingdom of Christ investment? That's actually why he gave you all of them. The tithe is us saying, you get the first part as a representation that it's actually all yours. Everything I have is yours. I'm just, I wish I could give more of it. How much of your resources are allocated to kingdom of Christ investment? Some of that is intended by God to provide for people to just keep doing what I'm trying to do right now. Preach God's word to you. Honor them doubly. Also give them an honorarium, a salary. Just like Old Testament Israel was divided into different tribes and territories, and every tribe received an allotment of land, so also the New Testament tribe has all been given an allotment. But in the Old Testament, there was one tribe that didn't get any land. They were to be provided for by all the other tribes as they lived among them and ministered to them. That's the Levites, the priests. Similarly, in the New Testament church, there's a few people in the tribe that God just puts around the kingdom that are ministered to and provided for by the tribe as they minister to and serve them. New Testament churches are to provide for their pastors, their livelihood as they seek to serve the church. So once again, it feels very awkward. And I'm also very glad God designed it this way. So it's not too awkward not to tell you because it's actually a good muscle to exercise. Now just imagine with me for a moment, I was independently wealthy. Not millions, billions. I hire Elon, okay? He works for me. Just imagine for a moment, should you still allocate some of the church's resources to my livelihood? I think yes. 
because there's a good muscle for us to exercise. And trust me, if I was that guy, we would be meeting here right now. We would have our building. The question really is trust. Like Paul said, I'm going to be content with food and clothing. Some churches try to make sure their pastor believes that. It comes back to trust. If he has more, will he invest more in the kingdom or will he get stingy and luxurious? Doesn't he know we're all just trying to make it this month? Doesn't he know we're just all trying to keep the lights on and get the car paid for? He knows. It's not about luxury. luxury. It's not about an extravagant lifestyle. It's about him mainly being able to focus on one thing for most of his life. If he's married, love his wife. If he's got kids, love his kids. Next to that, almost all of his time, all of his energy, not worried about anything else other than working hard to service the Word of God. And if you trust him, and he's independently wealthy, I still think we should pay him. And trust that he'll use whatever God's entrusted to him, just like we trust you will use whatever God's entrusted to you for kingdom investment. So I'm asking you again, what is your strategy for kingdom investment? Because one of God's number one things he wants you to do with the money he entrusted to you is show that you believe he owns all of it by giving it to your local church. And if you don't do that, you're missing the exercise of a muscle that's good for you, but also causes the kingdom of Christ to advance in the world. Many throughout the centuries, and certainly in our day, have taken this passage to promote what is now known as a prosperity gospel. There is no doubt in my mind that many networks on television, even today, were playing across the screens of hundreds and thousands in our city. I shudder to think about how many people are listening to this garbage who are nothing but a money grab and guilt trips coming from pastors to churches and Christians that is not at all meant by this text. But on the other hand, I unapologetically say, I've, asked, I've actually asked God for strength to say it to you now with confidence. It will stunt your spiritual growth. You will be disobedient to God. And it will actually encourage well-ruling pastors to leave for other pastures if we don't pay them well. We should do that. It's not unbiblical for a pastor to have enough to live on. Okay, just let that sink in. This passage is letting us know that it's actually the church's responsibility. And I'm one of you. I'm talking with you, for you, not only at you. It's our responsibility to see to it that our pastors are paid a living wage. So there's two things at work here, effort and estimation. He works hard. We've already talked about that. That's his effort. The primary goal of his hard work, though, is not to be well-polished in his delivery. 
Ironically, I think you can see that now. But it's to be faithful in his doctrine. Why don't I just get up here and shoot from the hip? Because I shudder to think what I might tell you about God. What if I lie to you about God? And you believe me. He works hard because his primary fear is not stage fright. I used to have a lot of that. I still have some of that. I say like Stephen Olford, I still get butterflies, but they fly in formation like geese. I still actually am apprehensive about talking in front of people. But there's a bigger fear. There's a big audience here today by my estimation. But there's only one audience that I'm really terrified about. The fear of the Lord. What if I lie to you about God? Old Testament prophet Ezekiel said that the Holy Spirit will go through and put a blot, invisible, nobody else can see it but God, on the forehead of people who lie about God, the priests. And then he'll send through his death angel to wipe them out. And I think it's a picture of eternal judgment. So the primary goal is not to be polished in delivery, but faithful in doctrine. Those who arduously exercise their mind to ensure that they do not lie to people about God are precisely the people, in verse 17, Paul says, we should take really good care of. Because the goal is not to have the best pastor in the world or to be so smitten with some pastor of yours who's thousands of miles away that you listen to on a podcast. Please benefit from Christendom at large. We live in a ridiculous day of good resources. There is no excuse for being biblically illiterate today. But this is a guy who is just an ordinary faithful pastor. In the next book that we'll get to in a few months, 2 Timothy, Paul commanded Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. God's actually the audience, not you. And I study, we study, God help us to study, raise up more pastors in our generation who will study to get it right for God's sake and the good of our souls. All right, now let's imagine for just a moment that a church is blessed with presbyters, that's the word in verse 17, elders, pastors, who devote the maximum span of their life, their energy and effort, to doing Jude verse 4, contending for the faith that's once for all been delivered to the saints. Let's just imagine that there's a subset of faithful pastors. And although there are many charlatans, and there's a lot of peddlers of the Word of God, there are definitely pastors who fleece the sheep for selfish gain. According to this book, there are pastors and Christians who devour widows' houses with heartless intentions to pad their own pocketbook. There are definitely people today who are what Jesus referred to as, quote, hirelings. They would leave the flock in time of danger rather than protect them with the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine. The world has seen many who use God's people for selfish gain. But for a moment, let's imagine that the Lord has blessed a church with a faithful cluster of God-honoring under-shepherds. How would we know? We would see the fruit. God would see the root. 
unseen hours of arduous, arduous prayer and labor. Hard work is the root. Study, prayer, help me. God, I don't understand. I want to say this faithfully. I know it's not my words, even if they're smooth. When they finally come out, it's your spirit that dances between the lines. You minister through your word preached in a way that I could never put it. God, just go to their heart. Cause them to love Jesus. Show them his glory. Let them see gospel love. Entrance them with your love for them. Captivate them with your heart for them. Don't let them believe the enemy's lies. And then you try to study the passage again and you get stuck in a hard place. Like, what does this mean? Why did you say it that way? I don't understand. Their communion with Christ in the closet is the fuel for their commending Christ in the church. The book of God reads them before he preaches it to others. H.B. Charles, pastor down in Florida, said, a passion to preach without a burden to study is nothing more than a desire to perform. Theatrics. And so many churches are trying to be as cool and hip as they can or to be as much like the world as they can to reach the world. Which is a foolish exercise because the world looks at the church and thinks we're already centuries behind them already. And so, pastors use the law unlawfully, 1 Timothy 1.8. They pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, 1 Timothy 4.1. They're hypocritical liars. Their conscience is seared as with a branding iron, 1 Timothy 4.2. They took verses of God's Word, mixed them up in a stew of their own self-concocted word salad, and started telling Christ's churches that getting married was a sin, and if they really wanted to be right with God, they had to eat certain food and abstain from other food, 1 Timothy 4.3. They were not preachers, they were performers. Theatrics in the pulpit, making the platform in the church a place for self-centered word drama, their oratory expose was a buffet of spiritual harm. Any who listened to them and agreed with what they said were actually on their way away from God. The sacred desk became a pedestal for selfish doctrine. When false teachers crept up into the local church in Ephesus, they were already under God's judgment. Not the preacher only, the whole church. Because Peter said it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who don't believe the gospel? But when a congregation has faithful heralds of the word, not impressive, very ordinary, but faithful, and they proclaim Romans 10, 17, the word concerning Christ. That's what the whole Bible's about. Good news. It's not you. It's him. He's the centerpiece. He's the jewel. His dying love is the crowning achievement that demonstrates all the panorama of God's wonderful perfections. If you want to know what the one true God is like, look at the cross of Christ. Look at the empty tomb where He came and hunted you down in His love because more than you want to be there, He wants you with Him forever. God commands us as churches, to have pastors who will tell you what I think I just told you. And if we have some like that, let's just pray for more of them. Because Memphis doesn't need more churches. But you know what Memphis needs? More gospel. True gospel. 
You know why? You want to know why? Because 1.5 million people live in this general vicinity. And today, or let's just go back a few weeks to Easter Sunday, on the best Sunday of the year, a few hundred thousand of them might, might, might have heard the gospel. That's if you count all the, quote, churches in our area. Millions of people headed for a Christless eternity. So if we get somebody, anybody, who'll say, read 1 Timothy 3, and I'm thinking that's what my life is like. Would you guys examine me? Okay, if y'all think my life is like that, I'll just give my life to this. If God will raise up some people who will tell some people about the gospel of Jesus Christ and a church gets built up and strengthened in the faith and equipped for ministry and they go out into this pagan city and keep doing that, Jesus turned the whole world upside down with 12 ragtag fishermen and former tax collectors. And if we will get the gospel in us because somebody just won't stop talking about it and God will accompany that talking with the power of the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, something happens. And there's not another institution on planet Earth ever in the past or the future who will take up that sacred task. The local church alone is the entity where everything I just said but not going to repeat happens week after week after week. So we should esteem them. That's the church's job. Isn't verse 17 kind of interesting? It's written to the pastor, but for the church. They are, quote, to be considered worthy of double honor. Who's to consider them that way? Hello, it's us. It's a present passive imperative. This is a command. If you have a faithful biblical pastor, and a cluster of them, and some of them get their livelihood from doing pastor stuff, that church is to think, hmm, is that good? Should we keep having that? What would it take for us to just keep getting that? All right, let's do the best we can to do whatever that is, because God commands us to consider such a one worthy of such honor and honorarium. You see, Timothy was a pastor, but he was also a church member. Timothy had to support other pastors too, so do I. A pastor should give generously to his local church. Why? One big reason, like the biggest part of any church's budget, one big reason every pastor should give to his local church is because God intends to use some of that money to support other pastors who shepherd his soul. So pastors whose livelihood comes exclusively from their ministry of God's word, their hard work of preaching and teaching God's word, are automatically a responsibility for a local church that calls themselves Christians to remunerate them generously. Double honor. Then Paul proves that point with textual support. Was this Paul's good idea? Nope. Verse 18. What's the solid ground beneath all this? 
You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. But I left out the first phrase, for the scripture says. The support Paul gives for the principle of paying pastors well is grounded in God's word. Instead of telling us what he thinks, Paul tells us what God said. He's actually being a good pastor while he's writing this sentence. God's word is the support for his instruction. Ken Mbugwa, serving in Nairobi, Kenya, today as a pastor, said the matter of paying your pastor is not a cultural issue. It is a biblical mandate. And the quote comes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. So for my fellow pastors, I have some real encouragement for you, brothers. And I mean it, though it is kind of funny. You're just a workhorse. You're an ox. You're the mule. Strap the yoke to you, get to work. Like, he compares us to oxen. Don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing. That's a good image, but we shouldn't gloss over it. We're not talking about a laborer who lives tidy, clean, polished, no connection to the dirt in the ground, no sweat in his faithful ministry. No, this is a shepherd, though compared to an ox, another metaphor, he has wool all over his clothes because he just is in the sheep pen. Rubbing shoulders with the sheep, tending to the Lord's lambs, John chapter 21. Feeding them with the rich supply of the all-sufficiency of Christ, going after the wayward ones. But picture this pastor, while he's threshing, I actually looked up images of oxen with muzzles. Picture this pastor doing his God-given best while he's threshing, while he's in the sheep pen, while he's busy working hard, the beneficiaries of his work are seeing to it that he can just keep on going. They worry with his material provision so he can worry with their spiritual provision. Paul quotes this same verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, do not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. 1 Corinthians 9, 9, he quotes that same verse. Listen to how he explains it to the church at Corinth. For our sakes this was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, We did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Here it comes. So also, 1 Corinthians 9.14, if you want to check it. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And then Paul adds another support. Not just Deuteronomy. Jesus. He says in verse 18, the laborer is worthy of his wages, and Paul calls that Scripture. That Scripture is Luke chapter 10, verse 7. From the lips of Jesus. Jesus wants us to know that paying pastors is a good and right thing to do. So, this is my, I've been the pastor here for 16 and a half years. This is my first sermon on paying the pastor. 
there's probably not going to be another one for another 16 and a half or more years. So uh, I'm almost done with this. I have an illustration, though. There was some teaching a while back from a brother who made a profound impact in my life who I still hold in the highest regard and emailed with this week. I hold him in high regard. I'm still moderately in contact. And he was used to the Lord in a lot of ways, but he popularized a concept for churches and pastors that he titled Wartime Lifestyle. And that was Pastor John Piper, and he was concerned with what he thought was a growing trend of faithful pastors living too luxurious, luxuriously and not really realizing what's going on in the enemy's strategy. So he used an illustration of a true story of a wartime vessel, cruise ship, that was turned into a war vessel because we were at war, not at play. And he said, we need a wartime lifestyle. Well, the year that I was at Bethlehem Baptist in Minneapolis where this brother pastored, someone asked him about that philosophy. And I was really glad to hear Piper say how it had been misconstrued by some churches not to pay their pastors well. And he said it basically comes down to trust. If a church has the money, they should not mandate, Piper said, a wartime lifestyle. Rather, they should trust the pastor, also cares about the gospel as much as they do, going near and far, and he too will join them in sacrificial giving to the Lord's work with whatever the Lord entrusts to him. So if a church doesn't want to pay a pastor above a certain amount because they don't trust that he will live sacrificially for the kingdom of God, Piper, then the church just needs to get another pastor who they can trust. If, you, if we can't trust our pastors to give them material resources, we need another one. So I copied and pasted a couple pastor job descriptions. Very important point for anybody who might wonder. I'm not interested in going anywhere else. You're stuck with me. I looked them up. Here's one I found. A pastor left his church who had served his congregation faithfully for almost 10 years with no increase ever to his salary, no benefits, and the church has plenty of money in the bank. This is all too common and very sad. This is not okay. That came from Brian Croft, who leads a ministry called Practical Shepherding. Here's another one. Lead pastor must be a married man with children, must have a seminary degree and five years experience, preferentially between 30 and 50 years old, salary, zero, benefits to be determined. Would you take it? Let me be clear. Grace Church is not like those examples. You do a great job of loving your staff pastors and lay elders, seeking to provide for us in so many ways so that we may serve you with less distractions. But I believe God put this passage in the Bible because he wants local churches to regularly reevaluate their approach so that they may contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministries and expenses of this church. And all of our members know where I got that from. That's our church's covenant. Well, here's the final consideration. So pastors need the church's care materially. This one just is so precious to me. We also need your care from ungodly people. And 
you need care from ungodly pastors. That's verses 19 and 20. It preaches itself. I'll just make a few comments. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. There's two things going on in verses 19 and 20 and both have to do with protection. First, the church protects the pastor from ungodly people. Second, the church is to be protected from ungodly pastors. All Christians, including pastors, can fall into sin. Just as much as any other Christian, pastors need a local church to hold them accountable. Before pastors are pastors, they're Christians and church members. I'm actually praying, and I never cease to pray this. It's a very regular part of my praying for this church. Raise up more pastors. Because some of you will be one of them. And this church needs to be protected from ungodly ones, and the ones that are faithful pastors need to be protected from ungodly people. There's the harm of false accusation, and there's the harm of unrepentant pastors. Look at the false accusation. This is just brief, verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So question, what does it look like to hold a pastor accountable? In a way that honors God, helps the pastor, and guards the flock from the dangers of a member, in this case a pastor, who lives in habitual sin. What does it look like to hold him accountable? The answer is verse 19. An unknowable pastor is a problem. That's actually not a pastor, that's a CEO. So people know him. His life is an essential part of his ministry. You cannot be a biblically healthy church member, biblically healthy, I mean, I believe the Bible teaches what I'm saying, without being truly known by the flock, nor can a pastor. If you just come in your silo and sit in your seat on Sunday and say you're part of the church, that's actually a misnomer. You have to be truly known to be truly loved, and you have to truly know the others in order to truly love them. That's also true for pastors. But if you don't know this, your head's been in the sand. Too many church members throughout Christendom let Satan take a lot of days off because they do his work for him. He doesn't even have to get out of bed and go do anything. One of his names is accuser of the brethren. And some people's primary spiritual gift, it seems, didn't come from the Holy Spirit, but from the sinister spirit, from Satan. They're to use a biblical category, fault finders. They love to slander. Their spiritual gift is criticism. And if you have a concern about a pastor, God wants us to know that we can do something about that. That's not a problem if there's a concern. It may not be true, so therefore you need to do what God says. Pray for him and pursue him. Like all other people, you should treat him the way you would want to be treated. The quickest way to dishonor the Lord in your relationship with your pastor is to believe what some of them are saying. Have you heard what so-and-so is saying? Who is so-and-so? Say their name. Because so-and-so is probably in sin. Because so-and-so talked to you instead of him. But then if you get in on the game and propagate to others, what, guess what I heard about Timothy? 
You know what that's called? Sin. Like Jesus on the cross bled and died for that thing. He doesn't want you to do that. It's called slander. If you do that, you must repent to the Lord who died for that sin and to the person against whom you slandered. Now, that does not mean the information might not be true. Somebody might have said something about the pastors, and they might be right. So this passage tells us what to do. It walks right through what Jesus taught in Matthew 18. The two or three witnesses part that substantiate the accusation. Oh, we looked into this matter and it actually is true. Heartbreakingly true. But if they look into the matter and it's not true, if they confirm that the accusation is false, they promptly disregard the lie and go to the person that was propagating it. He's not guilty. It's the responsibility of the accuser and any who joined him or her to admit they're wrong. Church, God wants you to protect your pastors from false accusation. And just to say it again, what I said a while back, if you don't like me, get in line. Because there's always going to be people against you, against me. Jesus said if they hated him, they're going to hate all his followers. Just don't get in line with them to do that work. If that person will not retract their devilish words that were confirmed to be false, it's as if they dumped a bag of feathers into the busiest intersection in Memphis and the deceptive disrepute has been spread far and wide on the name of Christ. You know the quickest way to get Grace Church gone? Your pastors could fall into immorality. That would be pretty tough. God forbid, protect us, Lord Jesus. Another way? the reputation about this church in the community, that we're a bunch of backbiters that hate each other. That would be a way. But if the accusation is found true, the approach of others might be a means of actually leading the pastor to repentance. What a work of grace. Pastors need a church too. It says, if he will not repent, rebuke him. But what if he does? Praise God. You knew him, you loved him, you cared enough about his soul not to let him continue in sin. You actually wanted to see him restored, not destroyed. You came to him in love and it was very apparent. And he repented. Praise the Lord. Pastors need churches as much as churches need pastors. And I need a church more than I need to be a pastor. But if he refuses to repent, it's of utmost importance that for the church's health, that he be publicly rebuked. It doesn't say removed. He might be publicly rebuked, then repent. Then maybe, depending on the situation, not removed. It's a wisdom issue. But if he won't repent, after public rebuke, he's got to be removed. But it's actually a safeguard for the church too, so that others will not fall into sin. That's what verse 20 says. Because once we see Nobody's exempt from satanic attack. Everybody's susceptible to falling into sin. And when we see some of our Christian influence 
leaders, pastors fall into sin, man, that sucks so bad. I've been there. I talked about church hurt at the beginning. I remember sitting with a dear brother who was a member of this church in the earliest days who had been hurt so bad by his pastors. Just like a big, strong dude. As I sat with him in his house and listened to the story, I had sensed for a long time that he had held me at arm's length. And I can understand now why. But I asked him for something then. I don't know if he was ever able to fully give, but I feel like it made some progress. Don't hold me responsible for what I didn't do. Help me help you. Help me love you. But if our leaders fall, man, we better rebuke them in the presence of all. Otherwise, the church isn't going to be protected from that ungodly man so that the rest will also be fearful of sinning. Verse 20. The protocol for an unrepentant pastor whose sin has been demonstrably exposed and confirmed by two or three witnesses and who will not repent is to be rebuked in the presence of all. It's a twofold purpose. The good of his soul, you can't continue in sin and live in faithful fellowship with this church. Not just because you're a pastor, but that's a standard for all Christians. And I say to you, the other side of that coin, you cannot continue in sin and be a faithful member of this church. It's for the good of the church. Achan's sin brought God's judgment on the whole assembly. So also a pastor who lives in unrepentant sin will expel the gracious presence of God from his people. It's true of every church member. Here's the application. Two of them. Concerning pastors who are worthy of double honor, I'm well aware that Jesus had no place to lay his head. 2 Corinthians 8 says he was poor. And we were actually saved through his poverty when he got on the cross and lost everything for the love of God for you. I know that in Matthew 27, some women, some of whom were Joanna and Herod's steward, Susanna, contributed to the ministry of Jesus out of their private means. I don't know if that means other people wouldn't do it. I know Mark 15, 41 tells us that there was a big crowd of women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him. I do know this much. The way God took care of the best preacher who's ever lived is a few people decided they were going to, quote, contribute to his needs out of their private means. I know that disciples didn't have much. They left boats and families. Paul and Barnabas were tent makers. John the Baptist wore a garment of hand-sewn camel's hair. He ate locusts for his diet. Elijah had to be fed by a widow. Isaiah and Ezekiel, I think, did not have clothes for a protracted season of their ministry. Hebrews 11, I'm aware that there are Christians who were leaders who wandered about in mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Our forefather in the faith, Abraham, lived in tents with his kids in the land of promise like a vagabond. And I realized God was pleased to remove Job's entire fortune before he restored it. 
Ken Mbugwa in Nairobi said, God's word languishes in the pulpit, though, because churches have been taught to invest in buildings and projects, not men who have given themselves to the ministry of God's word. We've erroneously and even sinfully called the men to choose between disobeying 1 Timothy 6, 8, provide for your family, and serve Christ for the sake of his name. While God might call pastors and missionaries to endure financial hardship for the sake of the advance of the gospel, no church is asked to make it their official policy. Finally, holding pastors accountable is the application. We need that. I invite that. I welcome that. I speak on behalf of your other pastors. I know those men would appreciate your prayerful, careful, full of care approaches for their spiritual good. We want to be known and we want to know you. I do not want you to know the fake me. I don't want you to know the perceived me. Little kids, I don't know what you think about me. I would love to know you better. I would love for you to know me. I know all of your pastors would love to be more known by you so that we can be more loved by you. Some people come into church membership with big ambitions of getting to know the other brothers and sisters in the flock. If that's you and your passion and zeal has faded, I'm here today to try to just get under and lift that again. Don't live your life as a silo that I mentioned. Don't live your life in isolation. You can go to a lot of churches and hide. I have prayed that God would not let this be one of them. Everybody being known. I'm talking about the real you, good, bad, and ugly, including the pastors, all together, pulling the rope the same direction, material needs being met, widows, pastors, everybody in between, and spiritual health on the rise because God's reputation in the church and in the world suffers when we don't do this well. Nobody's above anything here. Take heed lest you fall. Pride before destruction. Haughty spirit before the fall. Everybody here is susceptible to falling into sin. We need one another. And we need our pastors to be helped by the congregation because our life also teaches a message. Not only our lips But to falsely accuse one of them of being in sin is to bring disrepute on the name of Jesus. It is to fight against God. It is to tear down the witness of Christ in the broader community. To employ a pastor whose life is contrary to the Lordship of Jesus, he won't repent from known sin. Brings disrepute on Jesus, a reverse witness in the world. We actually tell people why they should not believe in Jesus if we won't hold everyone, including pastors, responsible for our sin, to repent of it. So I'm going to close where I started. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? If a pastor works hard, especially at word ministry, preaching and teaching, let's not see how little he can get by on and faithfully remain our pastor. Instead, let's double honor Verses 17 and 18. And God will be honored as his attention is given 
to doing what our covenant says, teaching us to obey the Word of God. If a pastor can't be trusted because of sin in his life, apply verses 19 and 20. Follow the biblical principles of Matthew 18, which are from Deuteronomy. And if he's guilty, rebuke him publicly in the presence of everybody so that all of us will be terrified of falling into sin. And God will be honored as the church together pulls all our responsibility, all of our resources in the same direction for the glory of Christ who has so loved us that he gave his life for us. And good news, I've been saving it for now, you long-suffering people. One day very soon, really, really soon, nobody needs your money. Nobody needs you to hold them accountable. Nobody needs to be rebuked anymore. Nobody leaves the faith anymore. Nobody gets kicked out because they wouldn't repent anymore. One day really, really soon, what the Puritans called a world of love, where the riches of Christ's supply is our constant richest affair, the diet that we eat in a glorified world where good news for all of you people, especially on a long sermon like today, you'll never have to listen to me preach again. But between now and then, we need some faithful pastors who just keep telling us the truth. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would help us as a church, not only to take care of our pastors, we ask for that, give us generosity in our heart because we love you and we love your church. But also, I pray that you would use this church to raise up and send out a whole bunch more of them that we can also serve and support. And we ask that you would draw us all to Christ, whose church it is, who shed his blood for his bride so that we may know your love and be taken care of truly forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.